I'm Alan, and this is Shadows and Shamblers. Please stand as you are able for this week's reading, which comes to us from the Book of World. Sometimes the old ways are the best. There's nothing like a knife in the back. Now you may be seated. So this week we watched American Gods Season 2, Episode 1, The House on the Rock. What did you think, Alan? I thought that The House on the Rock would have been the perfect ending to the first season, but they used it as a way to introduce us uh, to a cast of new characters for this season, give us a little bit of fan service right up front, and that really worked for me in a way that I was kind of surprised about. Um, there's definitely some issues, but overall, like this premiere of the, the new shows that showrunner situation, uh, managed to retain a lot of my confidence. What about you? I definitely agree with you. I think it felt a bit more like a season finale than a season premiere. Um, and that actually makes sense given that when they had plotted out uh, their plan for season one originally, this was supposed to be the season finale of season one. Um, and you know, not a lot happens plot wise. There's basically just two things going on. Um, but there are some great character moments, uh, glimpses of new characters that I'm really excited to get to know better. Um, and we kind of have to reestablish like what was going on two years ago, uh, before we can move forward again. Um, and I agree, it, it looks really good, it feels very familiar, and that's pretty comforting given all of the showrunner drama that happened. You know, I was kind of worried that we might get a season two that looked or felt really different from season one in a way that felt very jarring. So a little bit about this week's creators. This episode was written by Jesse Alexander, who is the new showrunner for most of season two, uh, who is replacing Brian Fuller and Michael Green, the showrunners from season one. Alexander broke into Hollywood by writing the screenplay for Eight-Legged Freaks, and he's been a writer and producer for nearly 20 years. Neil Gaiman also has a teleplay credit for this episode, and he helped run the show this season after Alexander was kind of exiled, question mark, from the project unofficially. Um, and this episode was directed by Christopher Byrne, spelled with a Y and an E at the end. Um, and he was the second unit director on the first season of American Gods, and so that probably explains why the visual aesthetic is actually so consistent. And yeah, so I guess we do need to talk a little bit about all of the behind the scenes drama. Um, so not only were the showrunners from season one, uh, Brian Fuller and Michael Green gone, but a lot of the like bigger name actors who were on the show were basically working on the show because they were friends with Fuller and Green. And so um, both Gillian Anderson and Kristen Chenoweth left the show uh, after um, Fuller and Green also left. Um, and apparently Gillian Anderson was going to do uh, like a tribute to Carrie Fisher as part of her role of media. Oh, I know. I'm so sad that we didn't get that. <laughs> Man, that sucks. Yeah. And you know, if you're going to replace any character media is the one that you really can replace, right? Because every time she appears, she has a completely different guise. So 
you know, I'm not saying that Julian Anderson is like, you know, eminently replaceable as an actress, but in terms of, of like continuity on the show, replacing whoever the actor is that plays media, you know, it causes the least amount of friction. Yeah, I think most of the friction is happening like behind the camera. Um, mm-hmm. And it's always possible to get Kristen Chenoweth back. You know, she says no right now, but maybe when her character is important later in the story, they'll be able to negotiate something, you know. I did love the throwaway line about how she decided not to show up because Wednesday ran over all of the rabbits um, and was acting like a (laughs) rabbit racist. And, you know, as someone who is impersonating a fictional character who hates rabbits on the internet, uh, (laughs) I will, like firmly join the rabbit racist parade or whatever nice (laughs) we'll put some links in the show notes for like you know whatever drama exposés um about (laughs) what was going on yeah mostly rumors um in particular there was like a den of geek article that i thought um had some pretty good insights Mm -hmm. yeah the one review that you linked me to i think the the reviewer he seemed pretty negative on this episode and actually like maybe it's just that my expectations were a little bit low given all of the drama and intrigue but i was actually very pleased with the episode i agree with you yeah it it was a little bit too harsh we'll throw that one in the show notes too and people can let us know what they think Mm -hmm. um so what happened this week this week the technical boy rushes a wounded Mr. World to the secret bunker of the mysterious Blackbriar Project. Meanwhile, the old gods converge on the House on the Rock so Mr. Wednesday can warn them about the new gods. Shadow joins the old gods on the carousel that transports him into Odin's Feast Hall, where he inspires them to earn the worship of human beings again. Afterward, Mr. Town is ordered to attack the gods as they feast in a hotel diner where he kills Zariah Vechinyaya. Shadow tries to stop the attack, but is mysteriously abducted, and Laura watches helplessly as his light fades further and further away. For real, right? We have... (laughs) Get a nice little cliffhanger at the end of this thing. Yeah. You know, and, and it kind of contrasts with the opener of last season where Shadow uh, was captured but got bailed out before the episode ended. Um, mm-hmm. But that doesn't happen here. So uh, I, I really liked this whole thing with Mr. Wednesday uh, talking to the old gods like not only are the special effects pretty fantastic and i think they did a really good job with them but the actual like what's going on here mr wednesday has gone and like kicked the hornet's nest and now yeah. he's telling everybody like they're gonna be coming for us you better you better get on the bandwagon because the war is happening and what he gets in response is a lot of people dragging their feet and wanting to kind of put their heads in the sand and stick with the status quo. And it just reminds me so much of like the kind of current political climate. Even when we can agree on uh, what's happening, 
you have to like just reach out and like peel people's eyes open and be like, no, look, fascism right there. It's right there. Please pay attention. And and that is like literally what Mr. Wednesday is doing, um, trying to tell people they're going to kill you. And then the response is, well, why don't we wait and see if that happens? And it's like, yo, <laughs> wake <laughs> up. So I really appreciated that. I feel like it resonates in a way um, right now, like with where we're at. Um, politically with where America is right now in a way that's really interesting and is really different from the book where when Mr. Wednesday gives this speech, uh, the gods have every right to say, no, we should wait and see because nothing has happened. And wait, so what's the difference? At that point in the book, you've only met the technical boy who gives Shadow a scary speech, but nothing really happens. Um, He's not hung from a tree like he is in the show. So the show has shown like a lot more antagonism between the two sides at this point. And what Mr. Wednesday is saying is like demonstrably true. It's objectively real in a way that makes anybody denying it look absurd. But I appreciate that because not only is it more dramatic, but I feel like it reflects reality a lot uh, better. I see. Yeah, no, I totally get what you're saying there. Because in the book version of this, they have more plausible deniability. Whereas, like, here it's like, there is no plausible deniability. It's just, like, trying really hard to be in denial because you're a coward. Or, or like, being manipulated by propaganda in some way. And, and it's a whole nother thing, too, when you've got Bilquist there being a narc. Okay, I was... a little bit confused about that role i don't know how much she's being a narc Mm -hmm. versus just like being used unwittingly or like i mean okay so obviously she is bought into the new gods proposal that you know the old gods use technology to get their worship and she's on board with that but i don't like i don't think she was bugging the room or anything like this the when Mr. World was looking down on her, I didn't get the impression that she necessarily knew she was being watched or knew about that the massacre was about to happen. Because he says, Mr. World says, I need her to feel complicit, mm. which I think indicates that she felt like she was going there with a peace offering to try and like persuade them to come to a peaceful resolution. And not that she was sort of like there as a spy for the new gods. Interesting. If that makes sense. Yeah. That was my reading of it, at least. Yeah, yeah. Because um, Tech Boy sends her at the end of the previous season when he has his really bad hairdo. Um, oh, yes, I remember that one. <laughs> so, yeah, I read it as she has the um, she has her phone out in the diner. And it's like sending the signal. But I guess you're right that it's not, there's nothing that says that she knows um, it's going to be an ambush. Yeah. And like from what we know about Mr. World's capabilities, like he doesn't need her, Mm -hmm. you know, and with Project Paperclip or whatever, you know, he doesn't need her. He can figure out where they are and target them. So it's more about manipulating her 
than it is about like needing her to be there to do anything specific or triangulate their position or anything. Yeah, that was my read of it. That's interesting. I really like that. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's just because I like Bilquis as a character and I don't (laughs) want her to be an arc. Um, But I think at least at this point, you can definitely read the text that way if you want to. I'm uh, I'm convinced by your argument. Um, Maybe... Bilquis is not a narc. I'm I'm very suspicious of people, so she's like, <laughs> I was ready to blame her for this. So in the book, is she not there just because she's like not powerful enough to be on Wednesday's radar? There's like um the Jin's not there either. Like a lot of the uh, coming to America characters are not there. I see, but I can see how like in a book Neil Gaiman wouldn't necessarily want them to be there, but in a TV show where it's like you know, people aren't as good at keeping track of characters and they've gone to all the effort to hire these really good actors. It's like you want to use the actors and keep the audience feeling like they have a relationship with these characters. Yeah. um, In a way that's different on a TV show than in a book. Totally. And these actors have to eat, right? They can't just show up for one episode and be like, thanks, you know? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) They got to come back. Um, Yeah, and it's cool to see the Jin and Salim like see each other again i was excited about that so yeah so while we're talking about bilquis at the diner i was really intrigued by the way she kissed laura particularly contrasted with how uh the kiss between shadow and laura last season Mm. where like if you recall um she's been like sitting in the warm bath water and she really wants the kiss to be this like magical moment for the both of them and then when they do kiss we can see that it is a magical moment for laura it like restarts her dead cold heart for one beat and then the next episode um when shadow is talking to sweeney we find out that like it was actually not that way for him it was kind of you know like kissing a dead person right (laughs) however however gross that you that is in your mind like that's how it was for him but I don't know like Bilquis seemed to actually enjoy the kiss and Laura seemed to enjoy the kiss more than she expected to and so I'm curious like how much of that is just like Bilquis trying to put her whammy on Laura the same way she puts it on everybody else Mm -hmm. or if she actually feels some kind of connection with laura or i don't know she's fascinated with laura it seems like yeah and not disgusted by her at all yeah i read her as a narc and so i was like oh does she think that laura is a god and that she's going to like hey why don't you switch teams like we'll become buddies and then i'll convert you uh that was kind of how i saw it and then the kiss i was like this is weird like i don't know what to think about this (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. There's a lot in this episode that I think is just, like, a little bit confusing. Um, And actually, so I watched it the first time with my roommate, and he, at the end of it, he was actually wondering if, like, Wednesday had somehow set up the whole massacre as a way to motivate Chernabog. Mm. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that in the text. Like, Mr. World definitely 
seemed to think that he was pulling the strings. But it's possible that Wednesday maybe anticipated that it was a possible outcome and had planned for it in that way, you know, where it's like, if he doesn't massacre us, then we win. If he does massacre us, then we also win. I mean, that's kind of like the hallmark of a good plan, right? Is that you're prepared for any contingency. Yeah, that seems more like Mr. Wednesday. Like, this thing happened and we lost somebody, but I'm going to spin it to my advantage. It's weird because like when, you know, like when you know a text really well and and you watch it be adapted and then you notice all the ways that they are using it. And so that scene is really weird for me to watch because the curse that Chernabog lays down is from the book word for word. Oh, really? But it's really late in the book. And, and the character that he's laying it down on is the same character, but it's like huh, this context is very different. What I sense is like some behind the scenes pressure because Cloris Leachman, who plays Zariah, is like in her 90s. I know. Actually, it was so funny. So as I was watching it, like when we first see her, when they're like sitting in the antechamber to the carousel, Mm -hmm. and I was like, man, like that actress is so fucking good. But when you're working with actors that are that old, like you got to be careful or you're going to end up in a Dumbledore situation, you know? And like, and then, and I was just saying like, I really hope, you know, she makes it through the end of the series. (laughs) And then then at the end, I was like, well, forget what I said earlier. None of that matters. (laughs) That's one way to do it. They solved that problem. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It, it it solves the problem, and then it, it, at the same time, I was like, hmm, they're kind of fridging her to make Chernabog do this thing, which is annoying. But at the same time, like, I get it, and, you know. Here's my follow-up question to that. Now that Zariah Virginia is dead, does this mean that the bear in the sky is going to escape and wreak havoc on everything, or are we just not going to revisit that? Oh, that's interesting. Because, yeah, because that was like their job, right? So right. <laughs> does somebody have Her to pick up? Her job is to watch in the morning. Right. Does somebody have to pick up the morning shift now? Uh, yeah. I don't know. I don't know if we will. The I mean, the book does come back there, but I don't know if the show will. That's all I'll say about it. You know, it's one of the interesting things, though, like I keep mentioning the book and I I don't mean to make this like a comparison because I I really like that the show is not like the book. If this I probably wouldn't do a podcast about it if it was just a straight up adaptation of the book, because I really like having this information about the book. And then that information is not useful for predicting what will happen. Um or they just actively use it to be like, nope, it's the opposite. Like, that's cool to me. So, Well, and it does seem like some of the tension that was going on behind the scenes and was resulting in the showrunner shuffle was that tension between, like, how similar do we want the show to be to the book? It seemed like Neil Gaiman maybe wanted the show to hew a little bit closer to the book than uh, Fuller and Green were doing mm-hmm. um, and apparently also like the actors were even rewriting some of the scripts like yeah I think part of that too was that they didn't have enough writers guild writers to make it um, like you have to work with union people when you're you know like a major studio 
mm-hmm. and uh, Orlando Jones, who plays Mr. Nancy, is also uh, a union writer. And so he was. Oh, I didn't realize that. That's awesome. Yeah, he was qualified to. They were like, "Could you write this?" Because, like, literally, that will make us be able to pass the union standard. So, yeah, that's. But that's weird to ask a union actor to do that on your show like that. I don't know. We'll see how it goes. Like maybe he's he's a really good improviser and and uh, a fantastic actor. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I continue to enjoy his portrayal of Nancy, which is weirdly probably the most controversial part of the adaptation that the strongest critics of, of American gods, um, their go-to argument is that Nancy is so different from how he was in the book because he's angry about racism and it's kind of like, Hey, you know, that was an oversight in the book and not like a miscalculation of the show. Right. Like, it's good. Yeah. I love his character uh, on the show. And I, you know, last getting ready for season one, I read like the first third of the book um, and then have not finished it since then. Because I kind of want to not know exactly what happens at the same time that I can make some comparisons. Yeah. Um, and it's hard for me to imagine Nancy without that. I mean, everybody reads in the book as being coded white, like everybody, mm-hmm. even though they're textually not. And so it's really refreshing, I think, to have, you know, and Nancy is not as old in this adaptation either. Um, Orlando mm-hmm. Jones reads as youthful. I mean, not like young, but he has a lot of energy. Yeah, I loved the like, creepy spider eyes on his forehead in the um behind the scenes oh it's great yeah yeah backstage i really liked how they handled that and like technically all throughout season one all of shadow's dreams are also happening backstage mm-hmm. and but this way that we see the gods and and uh the effect that they had you know, on their eyes and all that stuff i thought it was great yeah, I was a little worried about that in the same way that I was kind of worried about the Bill Quist coming to America aside, mm-hmm. where it's just like, okay, like, how are you going to pull that off visually? <laughs> and I thought they did a fantastic job. And, and in particular, you know, not just the visuals, but I thought the music, um, which is always fantastic, did a really good job of giving it that, like, super surreal flavor. Yeah. Yeah, last season, Brian Reitzel, who does the music for um, a lot of Brian Fuller's projects, um, had that really distinctive style. And this season, uh, it's different people, but they continue to have that experimental tone and really, mm-hmm. like, kind of seamlessly, I thought, uh, carried over that feeling from the first season. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that because I hadn't looked to see if the music was the same person or not. So it's it's interesting to know that it's not, but they are they're kind of successfully imitating it at least. Yeah, I don't know their work. There, it's actually like a team. But um, mm. when I looked them up on IMDb, they they're extremely busy. Um, they they do a lot of projects, and it says in, on their IMDb page that they're speciality is like experimental weird sounding music and i was like good pull that's perfect (laughs) so i think 
besides the idea of sort of like having to herd cats uh, <laughs> to come to their own political defense in the face of authoritarian fascism, the other big theme in this episode, I think, is the House on the Rock as, like, a source of power. And I thought it was kind of interesting, the the contrast that uh, Neil Gaiman is making um, between, like, how people respond to, like, naturally occurring places of mystical power in the U.S. versus in other places in the world. It's a very European-centric thing, right? But he's talking about, like, cathedrals and churches and Stonehenge um, as as being built on these uh, places that are sort of naturally magical, powerful places. And in the U.S., uh, the way we respond, like, we can sense that power, but the way we respond to it is a little bit differently. Instead of building cathedrals, we build roadside attractions. Hmm. Um <laughs> And I, I know like a lot of this book, I think, was inspired by Neil Gaiman traveling around the U.S. and, you know, his curiosity and imagination being piqued by just all the weird little ways that um, the U.S. is different from the U.K. Yeah. And sort of like his view as a British outsider. Um, yeah. And so you actually went to the House on the Rock last season. Yeah, it's a it's a trippy place, and um, they obviously shot on location for this episode. And yeah, I'm glad that you brought up this whole house on the rock thing as like a source of power, and um, because last season during like our analysis of everything, you would come up with this idea called the Tinkerbell hypothesis, and it it was like basically that people believe in things and because they believe in them they kind of like the gods manifest because of Mm -hmm. human belief and this is like a wrinkle in that idea because it seems like there's an inherent power to these places or or to the you know geographical location that Mm -hmm. has an effect on humans and then they respond to that so it's not that the people believe there's something special it's that there's like another force exerting something on them. And then this is a place that is good for the gods to, uh, I don't know, like charge up or something. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't thought about them as being kind of like contradictory theories of power that there are just like pre-existing sources of power. And then also power can be independently generated by human belief. Yeah, it's weird. I don't know. Yeah, it's like a chicken and egg. I don't I don't know if <laughs> the people are making it or if the place is making it. So um, but it's, you know, something to think about with the hypothesis. So my reading of it is that it's not just the people are making it like the people might be enhancing it by being there. But there is something about the location itself. And I think I mean, I think part of that is just it is like a quirk of Neil Gaiman's personal experience of being like, why is there a bat house here where there are no bats or, <laughs> or whatever? I went on a work trip to Australia and it seems like Australians have like a very similar strain. They also have a lot of weird roadside attractions in the middle of nowhere. 
So, like, I don't think the U.S. is necessarily unique in that. Like, maybe it's something about British ex-colonies. Oh, maybe. I mean, this makes me think of, I don't know if you've ever heard of this before, but it makes me um, think of this uh, temple in Anatolia called the Gobekli Tepe. Uh, I think I'm saying that right. It's, uh, well, it's not in English, and I've only ever read it. But the, the, the temple dates, you know, radiocarbon dating says that it's from 10,000 or 11,000 years ago. So it's pre-agricultural and it's like a, a circle of stones that have engravings on them. And each stone is like 10,000 tons or something like that. Like Whoa. very heavy rocks and they are fitted into the ground um, and stone masoned in ways that you know, previous to this dig, archaeologists didn't believe was possible for pre-agricultural societies or like, you know, who would spend the time and effort on that when you have to arrange for food? Yeah. But it's solid evidence that human beings don't prioritize survival as a part of our existence. We prioritize meaning in the same way, like, the, the creator of the house on the rock starts building on this land that he doesn't even own and adds to it and adds to it and just builds this absurd, bizarre thing that is not just about making money, but is about expressing something about his interests and his experience mm -hmm. that when you walk through it, you feel like you walked through someone's imagination. It's just like kind of at least to me what life is about as opposed to going to any of a, a number of cathedrals that might be beautiful but also cookie cutter-ish and like a christian mcdonald's you know like you've been to <laughs> oh one you've been to them all did you just ruin cathedrals for me <laughs> i'm just saying you know like they've all got the same pictures i don't know like it's like, Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Right. <laughs> you know, so I've never been to the House on the Rock, but I have been to, um, there's this place in San Francisco called the Musée Mécanique, mm -hmm. which is, imagine the House on the Rock, but without all the, like, architecture and trees. <laughs> okay. It's just, it's, I think it's like the world's uh, largest collection of, um, like, that fortune telling machine. Oh, Okay. These, like, mechanical devices um, were really popular, I think, in, like, the late 1800s, early 1900s. They've assembled this, like, amazing collection of them, and it's, like, an arcade, and they all cost, like, a quarter to play. The House on the Rock kind of reminded me of that, and that there's something also about, like, the human propensity to build these just, like, you know, little mechanical games or you know little shows you know 20 minute show that you can play with a quarter it's so weird yeah yeah <laughs> i think i spent like a good 15 dollars on just coins that i put into all of those clockwork little vignettes and uh mm -hmm. like the room where zariah is sitting and she wants to listen to the music is like a room where you put a coin in there and the entire room 
like lights up and all of these instruments start playing from like compressed air machines that start blowing through the horns and the violins all move. It's wild. They're all out of tune and it sounds real bad. And you're just like, whoa, like (laughs) it's crazy. Well, she does says she does say, "I want to hear the music. It's disgusting." Yeah, it's so weird. <laughs> Which, again, felt kind of like a callback to um, in season one when Shadow kisses the youngest sister, and she says, "It's disgusting, but in a good way." Oh, right. Yeah. So I liked that, and it made me glad that I did a a rewatch recently because I was like, oh, I see what you're doing there, show. That's nice. I like that. So, okay, yeah. So getting us a little bit back on track. So Nancy, I think it was Nancy, who likens the the carousel to like a spinning prayer wheel. Mm, Yeah. Um, So I was wondering, like, do you think the gods are gaining literal power that's going to help them long term in the battle from riding the carousel and being on that meeting or did they just need the carousel's power to go backstage and Wednesday wanted them to be discussing the war while they were like in their true or more godlike forms as like a subtle move to remind them of their own power Mm. or like what do you think um is the strategy behind that besides you know like I guess if you're gonna have a a meetup of gods you should do it someplace that's not just like a holiday and uh, <laughs> conference room that's a really good question i'm not sure that i have a smart enough answer for it um i maybe a little bit of all of that right i think certainly mr wednesday on some level needs shadow to be there and to see this i see so it's not really about the gods it's about really finally cementing Shadow's belief and faith in everything. Yeah, like you called him a faith battery for Mr. Mm -hmm. Wednesday last year, um, last season. And um, I think this is part of that because it seems to physically transport him backstage and he is able to watch all of this unfold. And then Shadow steps up in a way where he kind of closes the deal you know, and tells the gods, like, you need to earn the human's trust. Like, this is your chance to get back in the saddle. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay, and then my final question about this is, why is Sweeney not invited back? Is it because leprechauns aren't real gods? They're just like... Oh, shit. (laughs) (laughs) Some discrimination. (laughs) Yeah, it's interesting. I'm trying to think, was the djinn there? Because he would be like on a similar level. Oh, I mean, he was definitely at the House on the Rock. I don't remember if he went backstage or if he was just the bouncer. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't thought about... Maybe it's that Wednesday really dislikes Laura and Sweeney is like wrapped up in Laura's Laura. Laura's BFF. <laughs> yeah. And so he's like, nope. You're not invited. I mean, no, it is true. Like, Wednesday hates Laura because he killed her to get her out of the way. And she's, like, a wild card um, that 
you know, Shadow has ties to and and could potentially be loyal to instead of just being fully loyal to him. Exactly. And Sweeney has this connection with Laura and Sweeney is also like constantly talking shit about Wednesday to both Shadow and Laura. <laughs> so like clearly there's like some animosity there. But yeah, it just it felt like a little bit of a weird move. Like if if Wednesday is trying to keep Sweeney on his side to some extent. Like, this doesn't seem like a great way to do that. Right. Maybe it's just that uh, seeing Pablo Schreiber as Sweeney with those glowy eyes, like, it just doesn't fit with his character. Oh, that would be weird. Now I'm trying to imagine what it I know, like. right? Like, he's not dignified enough for that. Or if he doesn't have his coin, like, would he look, would he just look like himself? Oh. You know? He can't go on the carousel because Dead Wife has his coin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe. There's definitely a snub that happens because he's yeah. he's pretty salty about it. Um, in the book, you know, to bring us back to that again, uh, Sweeney's not there. That might also be part of the reason why. Because, like, they had to bring him to the House on the Rock because it just wouldn't make sense given the events of the previous season. But if mm-hmm. they're trying to get back on like closer to the book, then they leave him out of the scene because he's not in the book. Gotcha. Maybe. You mentioned that I had gone to the House on the Rock. And of course, when I was there, I made sure to go to Esmeralda, who gives you a prophecy if you give her a coin, like they do in the show. If you want to read my prophecy, go follow the show uh, on Twitter at Shadow Shambler, and I will uh, post the uh, prophecy. Everybody can read it, even though the prophecy is private. Ooh, I'm excited. I want to know what it said. And if you've gone to the House on the Rock and got one, respond with it. I'd like to read those too. Yeah, so there is kind of an important thing that happens early in the episode that I wanted to touch on real quick because I think this nicely sets up the kind of conflict that we're going to have this season, I think. Um, So right away in the episode, we get this scene where Mr. World seems to be like badly injured and gets taken to this secret bunker. And the way to get in is to show them a paperclip. And so I was like, why a paperclip? And I was thinking about it. And Mr. World um, mentions Operation Paperclip, which was, a real thing that happened in American history that is like, Oh really? Yeah. It's a touchstone for conspiracy uh, theorists where uh, at the end of world war two, you had all of these scientists who worked for the Axis powers who were really good scientists. Certain elements of the government didn't want to just throw them in jail or have them executed. Rather, they wanted to exploit their intellect. And so even though they were Nazis or they had even contributed to programs that made them war criminals, all of that was pardoned and they were granted citizenship and given new identities so that they could work on projects like NASA's rocket program, which culminated in the moon landing, like literally. I did know that one of the reasons why our space program was so good was because we just, like, took all of the German rocket engineers at the end of World War II. Um, But I did not know it was called 
Operation Paperclip. Operation Paperclip, yeah. And and this is like a thing that, you know, conspiracy theorists kind of latch onto and go, see, this proves it that, you know, the government does this kind of shady stuff. And and therefore, my whacked out ideas are real. Um, and so in the world of American gods, those guys are right. Because since they believe that those whacked out ideas are real, they are real. And the result oh, I see. is Blackbriar, this thing that Mr. World goes down into and starts what? to take control. Oh, my God. You just blew my mind. Yeah. So this is like, this is like the Tinkerbell hypothesis because the conspiracy theorists believe that it's true. It, it is. true. Yeah. Whoa. And this That's is a, cool. This is a big part of the book. This is these are kind of like Mr. World's foot soldiers. And uh, we already met one last season, Mr. Wood. And in this mm-hmm. one, we get Mr. Town name dropped. I did really love that intro sequence on the golf course where the guy gets run over by the limousine. Party. Yeah. J- yeah. Just like purely from a, a like visual and like fun little sto- mini storytelling perspective. I thought it was a great way to open the episode. And it, it felt like the old show, right? Like it was like, oh, yeah. yeah. I also noticed when he was in there, he, he told him to turn on the eyes of Argus. And I was like, ooh, Argus is uh, is that giant from Greek mythology who has a hundred eyeballs all around his uh, head. And ooh. so he's like the all-seeing creature of Greek mythology. Who knows if it's actually Argus's eyeballs they're using? I'd like to think so. <laughs> They've just been harvested and implanted at various locations. Yeah. <laughs> Who knows? So should we talk a little bit about Mama G? Because she's the the like main new character that we get, um, or like the new character that we get the most about. Right. She uh, has a speaking part. I mean, she also gets her own work montage, so... Oh, right. I, okay, so is that the hotel where they were at? I think it's the same name as the hotel they were at, but I kind of just assumed that it was um, like a chain. Okay, that makes a lot more sense. But anyway, um, yeah, so Mama G, is, who is uh, played by Sakina Jaffrey, uh, who is a, a fantastic actress. If you haven't watched Timeless, uh, then shame on you. You should be... Uh, put in prison because you contributed to it being uh, canceled, in my opinion. You, yeah, go to jail. That show is great, and it's a crime against humanity that stopped. Anyway, uh, Mama G is Kali from Hinduism. Maybe American audiences would be the most familiar, unfortunately, with Kali from uh, the second Indiana Jones movie, uh, The Temple of Doom where the oh, bad God. guys sacrifice uh, to Kali by ripping people's hearts out. Thank you. No, thank you for connecting those dots. <laughs> uh, Kali is a very violent uh, death goddess. Hinduism is very complicated. I know that I always say that whenever I talk about any of the gods because I feel bad for summarizing, you know, like an entire person uh you know like an entire religion and into a couple sentences but it's weird that mama g is like the voice of reason here so to speak uh because kali is never the voice of reason 
as one as one god of war to another right she's like let's go bathe in some blood let's go chop some heads off like let's do it and um i love that that's a woman though or like a female deity yeah hinduism has this cool aspect where every deity has um kind of like two genders assigned to them and they they manifest as married couples but really they're the same person um so shiva is the god of destruction and shiva's wife parvati she has like another aspect to her which a lot of the gods in hinduism don't they're just like very whatever they are but she has this other aspect as kind of like the Hulk to her Bruce Banner that is Kali. Um, oh. So when you get Parvati pissed off, she is going to go bust some heads. So she's extremely powerful and, and filled with like anger and uh, strength. And so is she in the book? Yes. This, or she knew. Okay, so she's not just new for the TV show. This whole thing is like almost word for word, uh, which, again, has always struck me as like, that ain't Kali. She wouldn't do that. If she was Parvati, like I would buy it. But I see. That's funny, though. So they kind of like they fixed Mr. Nancy a little bit, but they didn't update Kali. Yeah. <laughs> Even though they had the chance. Um, Could have made her less reasonable. But I think... In casting Sakina Jaffrey, who is like a fantastic character actress, that indicates to me that we will see more of this character. I really want to see her Hulk out. Like, I think that would be cool. Awesome. Yeah, maybe I'll have to check out Timeless since I'm one of those terrible jailed people. No, I'm sorry. You'll be going to jail and they don't have Timeless there. (laughs) Timeless is great. Everybody should watch it. So for season one, we tried to wrap up each episode by highlighting one way that the show surpassed the book and one way that the show failed to live up to our expectations based on the book. Um, And this time we've decided we're just going to generalize that to sort of one low point and one high point. So, Alan, what was your least favorite part? You know, I really just liked in this episode that um, the technical boy shows back up after he's been sent on his quest to go find media to like he's just kind of standing next to Mr. World at one point and he's like are are you really going to do this are you going to do it this way and I was like what why are you here and why are you like (laughs) criticizing your boss like aren't you supposed to be out there doing your thing like it it just it threw me out every time that I watched the episode I really don't like it and I mean I like that actor. He's doing a good job, but it's like unnecessary and and distracting. Mm -hmm. He's another Brit masquerading as an American, right? Yeah. Did I make that up? No. No, he is. He and uh, I think Laura is and uh, Shadow is and like nobody on this damn show is American. Is American, even though it's called American Gods. I didn't realize uh, Laura was... Uh, British too. I might be wrong about that, but I I just saw an interview with her recently, and she had an accent, and I was like, really? Oh. Like <laughs> you too? Yeah. So that that just really like stuck out to me. How about you? What what stuck out to you? So it was hard for me to come up with one, but the one thing that just really annoyed me was 
uh, when they're in the car, Shadow's wishy-washy answer about his belief in mermaids. Because that was basically my pet peeve of season one. Um, If you remember me complaining about that was that I feel like every single episode, there's one point where Shadow's like, I don't know, do I believe? Do I not believe? Like... (laughs) Even though I, like, just saw something really crazy happen in front of my face, you know? And it's, like, like I know that, like, Shadow's faith is supposed to be a major theme. Um, but it just, in the show, it felt like it was sort of, like, posing the same question every episode. And then we would come down on the side of, like, oh, like, Shadow believes that he caused the snowstorm. And then the next episode, it would be, like, it never happened. <laughs> um <laughs> And so, yeah, that was just kind of irritating for me. It's like, really? Mermaids? Literally, your dead wife just tried to grab your hand and you're like, mermaids? Who knows? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. I don't know. And it's... And I think that's something that is less irritating when you watch all the episodes in a row. Because, like, I'd recently binged most of season one and, and it was definitely less annoying. But, yeah... That was my least favorite part. Um, what about your favorite part? I really like that the when they go into the carousel and they're like in Mr. Wednesday's mind or whatever that means, that the gender split of the gods is more even than in the book because it's like a it's like a sausage party in Odin's head. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> um, and and also in the book. It's all about that all of the gods are old, like they all have white beards. And so that's an important theme in the book about like the ageism in America and how Mm -hmm. like old people are discriminated against simply because they're old. But the show has really like moved away from that uh, completely, like which is fine with me because what it has replaced that with is that it feels much more about people of color. So like when we get Kali, um, there's a Chinese goddess that shows up, uh, mm-hmm. Mr. Nancy, Bilquis, the, and Shadow himself. It really feels like you're getting a coalition of people of color here who are being told like, hey, the regime is out to get you. Like, please wake up and fight back. And that feels much more relevant to me in our political climate right now. And it's a more interesting theme for this show to be chasing. So I really appreciated that. What about you? What did you uh, like? I had so many little favorite parts because um, the the moment to moment work in this episode, I thought was just really great. Um, if I had to pick one, I think it would be um, the conversation between Nancy and Shadow about uh, how Shadow reminds him of Nancy's stupid kid. And how, like, like Nancy is clearly trying to piss Shadow off and, like, antagonize him. And Shadow uh, basically manages to just sidestep it in kind of a clever way by, you know, saying, like, oh, I'm, uh, you're comparing me to your stupid kid, but, like, I'll take it as a compliment because it's a member of your family. And, and so I just, I like this kind of, like, verbal sparring and the way that, that Shadow managed to impress Nancy in that moment. Um, I thought the dynamic between them was really fun. Um, Definitely. And then, yeah, I also, I liked the whole bit with the fortunes and the way that each character, like, went up and took their turn with the fortune machine and had, like, their own 
little meaningful interaction with it and then sweeney was like fuck that i'm not getting a fortune like (laughs) i'll just break the machine it'll explode (laughs) yeah and i really liked how like in the opening moments they kind of like show the passage of time just by like casually moving around where people are sitting in the car without a hard cut even really yeah that was like some really nice subtle visual storytelling I also really liked the the moment between Bilquis and uh, Celine and the gin, <laughs> right. where where she's like, "Do you boys need a moment?" <laughs> <laughs> and it's just like that's like one of those jokes that I think, depending on who's delivering that line, could be construed as like kind of insulting and homophobic. Mm. Um, but given what we know about Bilquis and her background and like who her past partners are and the and the one woman who she has had that particularly strong connection to instead it feels like a we're all part of the family like right. uh, moment of kind of solidarity yeah that's great i i should point out that the reference to mr nancy having a stupid kid and also the mermaid is uh an easter egg for the sequel book to American Gods, Anansi Boys. Cool. Well, I think that wraps us up for this episode. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L-I-T-E-R-L. You can follow the show on Twitter at Shadow Shambler and uh, read the prophecy that I got. Uh, visit our website at shadowsandshamblers.com. And join us next week for episode two, The Beguiley Man. And join us on Sunday night for a live tweet with the hashtag Shamblers. And don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. Because we are the original good time that was had by all. Shadow and Shamblers is a hollowed ground media production and is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial Share a like license. <laughs>